But as we dive into God's word this morning, let me encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. We are in our second week of a series called A Faithful God and Flawed People. Now, I'll be honest, if, you, if you've tried to remember the name of the series, which I know all of you absolutely have. That's the, you know, this is vitally important for you all. Um, by the way, if you're a guest this morning, I do get sarcastic sometimes. I hope that doesn't offend you. Um, but as, as we look at this, you know, it would roll off the tongue better if we said flawed people and a faithful God. Right? That just kind of flows a little bit better. It's easier to say. But as we go through this, we're going to encounter plenty of flawed people through our time through the, this last section of Genesis. But the reason I wanted us to, to say a faithful God first is because that's where I want our focus to be. Not on the flaws of the people necessarily, but on the faithfulness of God. So that's why we put the faithful God part first, even though it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily. Now, as we started this last week, we began in Genesis chapter 12, where we picked up the story of a man named Abram, who's later going to have his name changed to Abraham. We've said that he is the guy that three major world religions trace their origins back to this guy. And so he's an incredibly important figure in not just in church history, but in world history as well. As we're looking at the account of how God recorded his activity through his life, we saw last week where God made a promise to Abram. We saw that that promise was going to involve some land that God was going to give him. He was going to make him a great nation that would be a blessing to all of the world, and he was going to have offspring. If you remember, that was kind of a, a stretch for Abram because he and his wife were both elderly at that point. Uh, even though people lived longer back then, it seems like they still were past the age of childbearing. And so for them to have offspring, for them to become a great nation, all of this was something that only God could do. We saw Abram started off really well by responding by going where God told him to go, even though he didn't know where he was headed. And we saw him worshiping as he went, as he was setting up altars and calling on the name of the Lord. But then if you remember, uh, as the old TV shows used to say, when we last left our hero, where did we find him? Well, he was down in Egypt, wasn't he? He had left the land that God was going to give him. And we don't know for sure if that was sinful or not, but it sure set the stage for him to make a bad choice. He lied about his relationship to his wife, and because of that, God afflicted Pharaoh, and although he blessed Abraham, it seemed through it, there also were consequences that we talked about last week that started there in that failure of Abram. So last we picked up with Abram, he was not really in a great place. He was in the wrong place, making the wrong decisions, and had walked away from the Lord. So we said last week, as we looked at Abram, and this is what we'll see throughout all of these, these men and women who we look at as heroes of the faith, and we should, we should emulate their godliness, that at the same time, though, they leave us longing for something more. Now, as we pick Abram back up this morning, we're going to see some significant things about the way that God worked in and through him. This morning, the two accounts that we're going to look at Abram actually did stuff right, okay? So this is the part of Abram's life that we want to emulate, that we want to copy, because as we see these two different stories that we're going to look at this morning, by the way, when I use the term stories, I want to be clear. We believe these are actual historical events. These are accounts of things that really happened at a real place in time. So when we use the word story, we're not saying a made-up story, just a myth to kind of get us thinking. We mean there was literally a guy named Abram. He literally lived in this area near the Jordan River. He literally did these things, okay? So just so we're all on the same page on that. But as we're looking at Abram this morning, we're going to see two different occasions for him where he put this trust in God's faithfulness into action. And as we do, here's going to be my challenge. First off, I'm going to tell you, 
I like to word things well. That's part of you know, helping make the truth more approachable. I don't know if I'm going to succeed in doing that this morning. I've wrestled all week with how to say what I'm trying to say. Um, and so even some of that was getting nuanced this morning. So if it doesn't make any sense, say, yeah, Sean, you were right. You needed to wrestle with that a little bit longer. But Lord willing, he's going to take his word and he's going to apply it to our hearts in a way that's helpful for everybody, okay? As we're looking at Abram's trust in God's faithfulness, what we're going to see is he's going to do things that the culture and the world around him would not expect him to do. He's going to rely on the faithfulness of God instead of chasing after wealth or instead of demanding his own rights. In both of these instances that we're looking at this morning, he put a trust in God's faithfulness above what the world around him would expect him to do. And that's what I want us to really walk away from here this morning doing. If, I don't know, you may have a decision that's coming, you may have something that's a, a problem that's facing you, and it seems like there's a real clear way that this should be handled. My challenge to you this morning is, like Abram, to take a step back and look and see if there's something different that God might have you do, okay? Now, that may make no sense whatsoever right now. Hopefully, it'll make a little bit more sense as we get going, okay? So we're going to actually try to do the impossible this morning. You guys know we can preach a full message on one verse. We're going to try to cover two chapters today, all right? So y'all with me? Great. We're going to do a lot of summary, but what we're seeing is Abram's trust in action. Let's start off here in chapter 13, where we see Abram at first. Start, read with me verses 1 through 4. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, all that he had, and Lot with him. Now, Lot's going to come back important in this story, okay? Lot, if you'll remember, that's Abram's nephew. It seems like Abram adopted him after his father died, so his nephew's been traveling around with him. So Lot had gone into Egypt. Now Lot's going back with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now, this is not going to be a point necessarily that's up on the screen, but this is where it all starts. When we last left Abram, he was off track. He was in Egypt he was doing what he thought was best. He wasn't trusting in the faithfulness of God. Now, on these next two things that we see him do, we see him trusting in the faithfulness of God. But before he could do that, he had to come back. He came back to the place where God had spoken to him. He came back to his relationship with God, and there he began to call on the name of the Lord again. For some of you this morning, that may be what you need to hear today. You may have said, you know, Sean, I made this decision. I got off track. I blew it, and I don't know... I don't know that I can get back. For Abram, everything changed when he got back on track with the Lord. He got back to his relationship with God. He, he kept doing what God was telling him to do instead of what he hadn't. So he didn't go straight from Egypt to making these decisions. Instead, he got back on track with his relationship with God. Now, let's be clear here this morning. As I talk to folks in this room, there's probably somebody here who does not yet have a relationship with Jesus. You've not been saved. You've not turned from trusting in yourself to turn to trusting in him. So for you, this would be the first step is surrendering to him as your savior, your Lord, your master, your boss, okay? That means, but stop pursuing what you wanna do and instead pursue Jesus. And we'll see more as we get through why that's important. But there's a lot of folks in this room, I think, who have made that decision to follow Christ. You know that you're saved, you know that you're right, but if you were really honest, you're not living like you're supposed to live. You know that there's an area of sin in your life that you've been holding on to, and it's disrupting your relationship with God. 
like Abram, if you're going to succeed in these other stories that we see, you have to get back on track. You've got to get right with God and, and get back on track with him. Now, be clear, we believe that the Bible teaches once a person is genuinely drawn into that relationship with Christ and saved, they cannot lose that salvation. However, you and I, like Abram, can make dumb choices and get off track. And there are consequences for that. So for Abram, what he needed to do first was come back and get started and back on track. Now, when I say this, here's what I want to challenge you with. Some of you are sitting here thinking about uh, somebody you know who claims to be a Christian whose life is obviously off track. Okay, the Bible is very clear that certain things are sin. Like, you know, you know somebody who's actively having an affair, but they claim to be a Christian. You know somebody who's, who's stealing stuff from their boss. They're, they're cheating. They're, they're doing these things, whatever. It's very obvious. And you would sit there and say to that person, they need to get back on track, but not me. Can I, can I caution us just a little bit? If you're familiar with the, the Bible, you know that in the book of Revelation, it begins with God writing letters. Jesus writes letters to several different churches. There's one church that he writes to that's the church at Ephesus. And as he's talking to the church at Ephesus, he starts off by commending them because in a lot of different ways, they're doing a great job. They're defending the truth. They're standing for what's right. But here's what Jesus calls them out on. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had it first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, there's a lot going on in that passage. The idea of the lampstand is the church as a whole, that if the church as a whole didn't get back on track, Jesus was going to take them away from being able to be effectively lights to their community, in essence. That's the real quick way to say it. But I want you to think about this personally, because some of you could sit here and say, Sean, I come to church all the time. I do this, I do this, I do this. But if you're honest, your heart is cold towards God. It's just motions, it's just rote, and you don't really care. So it may be that there's no visibly egregious sin that you've gotten off track in, but like the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. You've allowed your desire to love Jesus to cool to the point where it's just what you do. So can I challenge those who, you know, and yeah, if you are in some kind of clear sin that you know is, is something that you're off track, then obviously you need to confess, repent, get back on track. But can I challenge those of us who think we might be okay to take a second look and just make sure, am I still fervently loving Christ? Am I still seeking his face? Do I still read my Bible with a sense of expectation that he's going to speak to us through his word? Do I, is my heart sensitive to conviction of sin when it's just little stuff that I said or just little something that I watched or did? Or am I still sensitive to that? And if not, then repent. Get back to the works that you knew at first. See, when Abram did that, he got back on track in his relationship with the Lord. That allowed him then to be in the place that as he faced these two things that were coming up, these two incredibly difficult scenarios, he handled them in incredibly wise ways because he'd returned back to his walk with the Lord. So like I said, that may be it for you. That may be where you need to stop. You need to write it down. You need to start thinking about what do I need to do to get back on track? But as we look then, we're going to keep moving forward and seeing a couple of accounts of how this played out in 
in Abram's life. Now, we got the the beginnings of it here in chapter 13. We saw that he's a rich man. He's got lots of flocks, lots of herds. That means you need lots of space, right? One of the reasons that uh, we wouldn't if we could anyway, because we hate doing the livestock thing, but we can't have chickens because we live on a lot that's too small for the town of Christiansburg to let you have chickens, okay? I wouldn't anyway, because that's just way too much work on my side. I just, uh, I'll pay the $12 a dozen. It's okay. Um, Or if you have chickens, we can make a deal, right? We will gladly support your chicken habit. If you have livestock, you have to have space, right? My parents grew up uh, out in Plum Creek. We had 40 acres when I was a kid that we leased off to somebody who put cattle out there. We had pigs when I was a kid. Uh, All these kind of things. You got to have space. Well, the problem was Abram had a lot of possessions that God had blessed him with, and so did Lot. And so as they're sitting there, they're starting to to run into some issues, and you see that the herdsmen start fighting with each other because there's not enough good pasture land for all the flocks and all the herds. They just don't have space, so they're starting to run into a problem. So what we see is Abram is faced with a decision about how he's going to handle it. And what he does is he trusts God instead of focusing on his rights, okay? Now, let's look at this. Again, (laughs) I just tried to swipe my Bible. Okay, there we go. That'll work much better. So Abram and Lot are fighting. And so it says there in verse eight, Abram said to Lot, please, uh, yeah, so open your Bible if you don't have it there, Genesis 13, eight. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we're relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, as you read that, that just sounds like a nice thing to do. But keep in mind the culture of that day would be very different than ours. In that day, Abram had all of the rights in that situation. He was the elder. He was the patriarch of the family. He was the one who had taken Lot in. So Abram had the absolute right and would have been well within bounds for him to have said, hey, I like that land. You go somewhere else. He had no obligation whatsoever to let Lot have any part of this discussion. But because he's trusting in the Lord, Abram says, you know what? Lot, I'm going to let you choose. You choose where you want to set up camp. You choose what you want to do. As you're thinking through that, here's what's interesting about that. There is absolutely nothing wrong at times with exercising the rights and the authority that God has given you, right? There's sometimes as the dad that I get to pick where we eat, right? That's just part of the prerogative. There's times where, you know, I don't have to always listen to what my kids want us to do. That's right. That's natural. That's a part of how God's done this. So it would have been perfectly within bounds for Abram to say, you know what? I'm going here. That may not have even been wrong, it seems to us. But because of where Abram was in his relationship with the Lord at this time, he deferred. And instead of focusing on his rights, he focused on making peace. And he said, Lot, I love you. We shouldn't be fighting like this. I'm letting you choose. What an act of deference from this older man. Instead of demanding, this is my right, you deal with it. He seeks to be a peacemaker and lets him go. Now, it's interesting because as Lot picks, uh, Lot picks very poorly. 
He picks the best looking land. It gets him near a city that will one day be destroyed for its wickedness. It gets him caught up into a conflict that we'll see in chapter 14. He made a really bad choice, but Abram led him. Abram modeled what would be said of, or that would be commanded by Paul later for us. This is a verse we looked at several weeks ago in our Wednesday night prayer meeting. Philippians chapter two says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I don't know about y'all, but that's convicting for me. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Life is not about me. And it's not about you. You know, we adapted something I heard from others. You know, you've heard people say joy, Jesus first, others next, yourself last. Here's what I've found. Typically, we don't struggle with needing to get ourselves taken care of. So in our family, we just say Joe, right? Jesus first, others next. Because Part of following Christ is deferring my rights. Now, that does not mean that you should enable people to live in some kind of sin or to, to abuse you or to walk all over you. That, that's not what this is talking about. However, we should have an attitude of deference. That's what we see in Abram, where he says, you know what? I could demand my rights here, but instead I'm going to pursue peace, and so I'm letting Lot pick. Now, it's interesting because there is a tension there, right? Because how do we assert our rights versus how do we defer? I don't know. Figure it out. It's a case by case. There are other instances, like I say, where where it seems that that God calls people to step up and say, you know what? My deference in this is actually to push through the uncomfortableness and make this decision for us. But any way you cut it, the focus is on honoring and trusting the faithfulness of God. See, if I'm trusting the faithfulness of God, I don't have to fight for my rights because I know God sees and I know God works and I know God's gonna do something. So God's got me. He's got my stuff taken care of. And that's what Abram does. He says, all right, Lot, you pick. Lot picks poorly. And then we pick back up, jump down a little bit in verse 14. After Lot had separated from Abram, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could, uh, so that, excuse me, yeah, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth and your offspring could be counted, get up and walk around the land through its length and its width, for I'll give it to you. Now, God knew which part Lot would choose. This was the land that God had promised to Abram and his descendants forever. God knew what he was doing. His promise would not be thwarted, even if Abram let Lot choose. Because in the faithfulness of God, he was going to put his people where he wanted them. He was the one that could guide it. He was the one who could direct it. And instead of there being a fight, because Abram said, you know what? I want all of this. You go over there. Abram defers. God still works it out how it needed to work. And in doing so, he he fleshes out more of this promise, right? 
God told him he'd have this land. Now you see the abundance of it. He says, look all the way to the north, all the way to the south, to the west, to the east. It's all going to be yours and your descendants forever. And not only did that, this is the first time that we see him mentioning. Last time he said that he'd have offspring. But now he said, your offspring are going to be innumerable. Like the dust of the earth. If somebody could weigh all the dust of the earth and count out every single grain of dust, which, by the way, we got a cocker spaniel that's a year old. You come to our house and you can see the dust. We try to clean, we vacuum all the time, but there's dust everywhere because the cats and the dogs and the long-haired kids. and the, I mean, it's... It's just life. It's a never-ending battle. But the reality is, he said, that's how innumerable. By the way, some of you are thinking, Samantha's just not a good housekeeper. That is not at all the truth. It's just a losing battle. She does an amazing job keeping her house clean. It's better than 90% of the houses I've ever been in in my life. She's incredible. But there's just a ton of dust. And God said, if you could count every single grain of it, then you could count how numerous the offspring are. What an incredible promise that Abram got to see because he trusted the faithfulness of God and put that into action and said, okay, Lot, you pick. And God directed that choice and allowed Abram to be in the land. Isn't that beautiful? So here's the question for us then. Can I defer my rights? Can I trust that God's got this? Can I actually say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to let somebody else choose on this one because I don't have to have my rights because I serve a God who's faithful. See, he trusted God instead of focusing on his rights. Abram had returned to the Lord and called, him, called on him, and that put him in the right place to allow God to lead, which God did. The promise kept moving forward. God's plan kept moving forward. Now, it's going to look different than land or offspring or things like that for us. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is whatever the outcome of the situation is, you can trust in the sovereignty of God. You can trust that he knows, that he's faithful, that he's able to accomplish what he has said. It may not work out the way you want, the way you think, the way you see, but you can trust him. Abram did and saw God move the promise forward. Now, let's move to the story. Not only did Abram trust God in this instance to allow Lot to choose, you see that the second thing is he trusted God instead of pursuing wealth. Yeah, I said it better on the slide. He trusted God instead of focusing on getting rich. Now, you guys are good church-going people, and you know better than to be honest about the fact that you want to get rich, okay? No, pastor, that's not it at all, okay? Let's be open, let's be honest. That in us, a lot of times, there's a desire to get more stuff. And by the way, in and of itself, wealth is not a bad thing. Wealth is a tool. It's not that money is evil, it's that the love of money is the root of all evil. There are wealthy folks in the kingdom that God allows to invest in his work in incredible ways to accomplish things that can't happen otherwise. It already said Abram was so rich that nobody could live near him because he took up too much space. However, his focus was not on building his wealth. I read something interesting yesterday. How many of you are familiar with Warren Buffett? Not Jimmy Buffett, Warren Buffett, right? 
Warren Buffett is one of the richest men in American history. Uh, the, the thing that everybody thinks of him for is Berkshire Hathaway. Okay, you guys, that's the company that, that uh, he bought, and it's not the company he founded. I didn't know that. Um, it's a company he bought, and it's one that he turned into like an investment and everything else kind of firm, and now he's a billionaire. You know, in 2010, Warren Buffett actually said buying Berkshire Hathaway was one of the biggest mistakes of his life because he bought it out of, he was mad at the president of the company that was trying to sell him. He changed the deal when it got to the table, and so out of emotion, he bought the company. And in so doing, he, he said he could have been orders of magnitude richer than he was. Warren Buffett does not need to worry about being orders of magnitude richer. If you've ever been around somebody who is driven by wealth, by the way, you don't have to be rich to be driven by wealth. If you've ever been around somebody who's driven by this, you know that enough is never enough. There, there's no limit. There's, there's always one more thing to get. It doesn't even matter. It's just as long as the, the line's going up into the, up, for you guys, up into the right, that, that's all that matters. Abram, though, was not focused on getting rich. And in that, he wasn't focused on doing things the world's way when it would cause him to compromise. Let's see how that happened, okay? So we're going to summarize a lot of what takes place in chapter 14. Lot has moved now down to the area near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, who are going to come back around several times in this story. There in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's gotten closer to the cities. Well, a war breaks out between some of the rival cities there. There's four kings go against five kings. The king of Sodom loses. And in that battle, Lot and all of his stuff gets carried away with all of the other spoils from Sodom in that region. Okay, so Lot's been taken captive. He's got taken all his stuff is gone. Now the king of Sodom, all his stuff is gone because he's now been conquered by this other king. So what's Abram do? Abram gets 318 of his guys together and they go after him. Now, I don't know what the size of the other army is. I don't know like what the disparity is. The Bible just says Abram took 318 of them and trounced them and got all the people and the stuff back. Cool. Like, it's a, there's so many details that the text doesn't give us. How did that play out? Like, I don't know. But what we do know is that God gave Abram the victory. Abram's able to go, and he gets back all of the people that had been carried off from Sodom, including Lot, all of the stuff that had been carried off from Sodom, including Lot's stuff, and he brings it back. And that's where we want to pick up. Pick up with, in chapter 14, verse 17, okay? Now, here's some of you are sitting there saying, I know why Sean skipped all that. He didn't want to say all these weird names. Verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shaveh Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, we're going to come back to Melchizedek here in just a minute because he is a really cool character. But as we go through, read now to verse 21. So then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. All right, how many of you have heard the phrase, to the victor goes the spoils? That's what he's saying here. Hey, look, you put your risk, your neck on the line to go save my people and my stuff. So just give me the people back and you keep the stuff right? That's a very generous offer from the king of Sodom, except for the fact that that's what was expected, right? Abram was the one who put his neck on the line. His guys went out. His guys were the ones who were victorious. So they get to decide what they want to do with the stuff. 
But here's how Abram responds. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Anair, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. I'm not even going to take a single thread or a sandal strap from you. Why? Because the king of Sodom was a wicked, wicked man. We're going to see that more clearly as we get to the section on Sodom and Gomorrah. His city was known for its godlessness. And Abram said, I'm not taking a penny from you because I don't want anybody to ever be able to say that Abram took money from that guy, that this guy made him rich. Because he realized that doing that would compromise his integrity. Instead, he was trusting in the Lord. He said, you know what, God, you're the one who's in charge of my wealth. You're the one who's in charge of what happens to my future. I don't need this from this guy because I need to prove you're more important than that. He didn't want to give the king of Sodom any kind of leverage where he could come back and say, well, yeah, but you wouldn't be rich if it wasn't for me. No, he put his trust in God and God alone and refused to take anything from the king of Sodom. Now, it's interesting because as we especially go through the conquest in Judges, or excuse me, in Joshua rather, you see the nation of Israel taking spoils from godless kings. So again, this is expected that he would take the spoils. It's expected that he would have these uh, things. And there are other times where that might even be okay. But in this instance, because he was walking with the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord, God gave him the wisdom to see that this was a trap. Some of you may have been in a position where somebody offered you something and you knew there were strings attached. You knew that there'd be a favor later that came from it. Abram was wise enough to see that this wicked, godless king would say, yeah, yeah, no, no, take whatever you need out of the possessions. Oh, and by the way, could you take care of this guy over here? Oh, by the way, because remember, I, I made you rich. It's, that's actually my money. See, he was focused on trusting God and not getting tangled up with the way the world was doing things. For this, it was actual wealth. But maybe we need to think about whether or not that's a promotion that we're trying to get at work, that we're willing to make compromises on. Maybe for us, it's that there's a particular boy or girl that we're dating that we know, I, I just hate being alone, and I know I shouldn't be dating this person because they don't love Jesus, but Maybe it's the major we're choosing. Maybe it's the way that we're acting. Maybe it's the way that we're... But instead of focusing on doing what everybody else is doing, we need to be willing to trust in the faithfulness of God. No matter how rich it would make you for being able to, to get this thing from them, it's not worth it. It's not worth the compromise. We serve the God who... Psalm says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We serve the God who heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. He is the most high God, the creator of heaven and earth. If we're trusting in his faithfulness, he's going to take care of us. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be wealthy and have everything that we want and never be sick and our relationships are always going to be wonderful. That doesn't mean that. It means that whatever God's doing through those things is always for his glory and our good. No matter how hard or confusing or whatever. So we've got to say, you know what? I'm trusting God in this one. I'm not going to take that. Now, Abram had actually gone a step further in demonstrating his trust in God. I'm going to cycle back now to this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an absolutely fascinating person. We only see him in three verses in Genesis, one verse in Psalms, and then he gets like two whole chapters in the book of Hebrews. Because he's this interesting guy. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem. Many commentators believe that he was probably the king over Jerusalem at that time, the area where one day God would build his temple, where he would have the physical manifestation of his presence dwell, and eventually where his own son would be crucified and die on a cross, be raised from the dead. This guy was the king over that region, perhaps. But it also says he was a priest. Now, it's interesting because as Moses is writing the book of Genesis, the nation of Israel is just getting started and they're starting to find out about the Levitical priesthood, right? If you were going to be a priest of the Most High God, you had to be a descendant of Levi. Well, Levi hadn't been born at this point. Melchizedek is a priest. We don't know how he came to know about the God Most High. We don't know how he came to worship the one true God, but he is a king and a priest who doesn't come from the line of Levi. And so Abram, As the king comes out and meets him, Abram offers him a tenth of everything. This, by the way, is where we get the foundations of the idea that God calls us to give a tenth of our our income to his work, okay? I don't want to belabor the point this morning, but in the Old Testament law, you'll see clearly where God prescribes certain offerings at certain times and you hear about tithes. By the way, the, the actual, uh, the total number percentage for Israel was about 22, 23% when you count up all of the different offerings that they were supposed to bring over the course of a year. But here we see before any of that takes place, we see Abram out of a response for what God had done, out of the blessings that God given him, giving a tenth of that back to the work of the Lord through this guy that's the king and this priest named Melchizedek. So that's why we, recommend starting at 10%, okay? There's more to that, by the way. Uh, Jesus affirms that tithing's a good thing. There's all kinds of stuff we could talk about. But this was Abram's free will response to give God that first 10%. Now, it's interesting because as Melchizedek shows up later in Scripture, you find out that Melchizedek is what's called a type of Christ, now, um, I want to define that because when you hear type of Christ, that's like, are there different varieties of, of, of Christs? And this is just one of the types of Christ you can have. Now, when you use that term talking about people in the Old Testament like this, a type of Christ means somebody who acted a lot like Jesus would. There weren't Jesus. I don't believe Melchizedek is Jesus. There are some who believe that this is what's called a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus before he came incarnated in Mary. But that's not most likely here. This guy was an actual guy. But what he did was the way he acted and responded pointed us to Jesus. Now, Moses would not have seen that necessarily. He would not have known that. But as God says through David, you'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see the writer of Hebrews pick that up later to be able to say that Jesus is the high priest. 
See, Jesus is the one who mediates between us and the Father. But the way he does that is through the sacrifice of his own blood and body. Jesus died in our place. Here's what's so beautiful about this. Who would most likely wear the title king of righteousness? Well, Jesus. Who is the one who's the king of peace, which is what Salem means? Who's the one who's the prince of peace? We just talked about it at Christmas. Jesus. So here you have this human figure who points us to Jesus, even to the point where what does he bring out with him when he comes to meet Abram? It says he brings bread and wine. Now, that's probably just kind of euphemistically referring to all of the king's spread that he would bring out to celebrate a victory like this. However, God knew what he was saying there. What does Jesus do on the night before he's betrayed? He brings out bread and wine and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is spilled for you. And he makes a new covenant blessing God's people. So in this Melchizedek guy, in this guy that we know nothing about, we see the, set, the stage being set for Jesus, who's a priest who's not a Levite. We see him receiving an offering. We see him blessing God's people. We see him taking the bread and the cup. Abram's greatest descendant is foreshadowed here. Isn't that incredible how God does this? By the way, it points us again to the fact that we need somebody bigger than Abram because Abram offered something to Melchizedek. He gave a free will offering to Melchizedek because he wasn't greater than Melchizedek. As great as Abram was, he still recognized that he wasn't greater than God Most High. So here in this person, we see even Abram trusting God, not only to not take spoils from the king of Sodom, but actually to give to God. Saying, God, I want to give you a tenth of everything I've got. Because his trust was in the faithfulness of God. And in it, God weaves this beautiful picture that will one day be fulfilled, like I said, in Abraham's greatest great, 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 great grandson, Jesus the one who loved us so much to die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that we could have life. The one whose blood mediates the covenant between us and God. The one through whom sacrifice and life, I can have life. So in this, you see these overtones of the faithfulness of God that will go all the way through the cross and resurrection. So here's my challenge for you this morning. Are you at a place where you're ready to put your trust into action? For Abram, that meant denying his rights and not focusing on getting rich, but instead honoring the God who'd been faithful, trusting in the faithfulness of God. What do you need to trust in God's faithfulness for this week? Here, why don't we do this? Go ahead and just close your eyes, bow your head. We do this not because we're going to do anything strange up here or anything like that. We do this because we want you to have the freedom to be able to think and respond without having to be distracted by anybody moving around you or, or think about what other people are thinking or doing. So there with your head bowed and your eyes closed, let's, let's kind of go back to the beginning. Have you gotten off track? Have you lost your first love? Abram went back to where God had spoken to him and he started to call on the name of the Lord there. 
And maybe today that's where you need to start. God, I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me the strength to repent and turn from this. And I want to walk with you. Now, if, if you know that to the best of your knowledge and understanding, you're right with the Lord and, and you're walking with him, none of us are perfect, but, but you're walking consistently with him. What does trusting in the faithfulness of God look like in your life this week? Is there a decision that you're, you were ready to make because this is just what's expected that maybe you need to stop and reevaluate? God, do I need to sacrifice my rights here? God, what does it look like for me to focus on you and your provision instead of trying to get rich through, through what you, I can do or through what the world would offer me? What does it look like for you to trust in the faithfulness of God this week? I want you to take just a minute and respond there in your own heart. If you want me to pray with you about anything, I'll be down front. would love to talk with you. If not, you just do business with God there where you are. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. Father, we thank you that all our life you have been faithful. We thank you that you worked through guys like Abram. That you even pointed us to these incredible truths through Melchizedek. That you have been faithful every moment throughout history to accomplish your purpose and your plan. Today, we as a church confess that we trust you. Help us to put that trust in action for our family for your church, for our jobs, for our school, for our relationships, for our family, friendships, whatever. Be glorified in it all. Help us to be like Abram was in these passages, to be generous toward you as you've been generous towards us. Help us to trust in your faithfulness help us to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning and worshiping with us. We hope that this has been an encouragement to you. By the way, um, one thing that we don't talk about a whole lot around here is how do I give? Um, if that is something that you're interested in finding out more about, you can give online, you can give through the church center app, or there's a tithes and offering box that's just right outside there in the hallway. There are a lot of other ways for us to apply this message beyond that, but I did just want to hit that while we're thinking, okay? So, if there's anything that we can do for you this week, please let us know. We are praying for you guys. I hope that you have a great week, and God bless you guys. You're dismissed.